to Leslie Kamenoff. Uh, welcome to Kiki TV. Leslie, I'm so glad that you're here today. Leslie is bringing uh, more than 40 years of yoga knowledge, yoga experience, and so much study and sharing. And I really wanted to, I'm so happy that you agreed to sit down with me. And I really just wanted to look at what is modern yoga coming out of the West? And how did we get to where we are? And what were influences in some leading movements of yoga coming out of New York and California in the mm -hmm. last 30, 40 years that has shaped um, probably international yoga today. That's my thesis. You know, viewers sure. can disagree. You can disagree. So Leslie, you started yoga. 1978. You're an OG. So I fit in, I fit in that, you know, 40 year time That's span. Right. Plus a little, yeah. <laughs> and you were yeah. you were in California at that time? No, I was in New York. Um, oh. I, I got sent to California by the Shivananda group in 1981. But I did my first yoga class uh, at the Shivananda Center on 24th Street uh, in 1978 at the invitation of my father, actually, who was taking classes there. He was oh. dealing with kind of a midlife crisis of his own and using things like yoga and, and uh, psychotherapy and meditation and, and, and running marathon running to turn his life around. And um, so it was actually his invitation that brought me to my first yoga class. And that would have been when I was 20 years old. Amazing. So when we came into yoga, I would say I was introduced to yoga in 1981 through my studies at New York University in theater mm. and um, that very you know few people knew about yoga at that time but probably the most influential yoga in those 70s early 80s was the Shivananda yoga today in terms of the numbers of yoga teachers they trained certainly I mean the first yes. wide-scale training of yoga teachers with a sort of a set month-long program, you could definitely point to Shivananda. Integral had its own training programs as well. Um, but in terms of the volume of teachers trained, I think you'd have to give that one to Shivananda. So, and I think, yeah. but I do think that we would have to tell people today, well, what the heck is Shivananda yoga and what was Integral <laughs> yoga? Because these influential <laughs> sure. schools and uh, programs uh, have been eclipsed by other influences. So, um, mm. How would you? Well, in a, in a sense, actually, the time frame you're talking about is interesting because it's when the uh, sort of Vedanta-influenced uh, way that yoga had been taught in the West for about 100 years since Vivekananda introduced Vedanta in uh, 1893 at the World Parliament of Religions in Chicago. Um, 1893. Um, you know, the, the main um, viewpoint that was behind the yoga that was being taught, the Hatha yoga was being taught, was very much influenced by, by Vedanta. And that's evidenced by the fact that, you know, Integral and Shivananda Yoga, those were started by Swamis, both of whom were students of Swami Shivananda. Um, and, but there, was, there were also flourishing Vedanta societies in the States for many years prior to that and, and so on. But the time frame you're talking about is sort of when the householders took over from the Swamis, if you think about it, because 
when we look at the influences Absolutely. that came from Krishnamacharya, right? Who was a householder, his teacher, Sri yeah. Rama Mahana Brahmachari was a householder, Patabi Joyce householder, uh, Iyengar householder, Deskachar householder. Yeah, these were all people with families, with wives, with children. They were not, you know, um, renunciates. Yeah, yeah. They had to earn a living, right? And and so, but but more importantly, I, I would say the the um, philosophical underpinnings were were different because they went to Patanjali primarily, um, and that's treating yoga as its own darshana, as its own point of view philosophically with its own metaphysics, whereas Vedanta was actually borrowing uh, yoga um, practices and, and, and all of that to promote its philosophy, which of course was behind this, the swamis, you know, when you, when you take, I, I, I was a swami, by the way, with Shivananda. So I, I, don't know if I you knew learned that, that recently. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Right. So, so you're actually, you know, you're part of a religious order when you're a swami and the underlying view of the universe is that of Vedanta. So Americans or Westerners in general had been receiving their Hatha yoga with a healthy dose of Hinduism, actually. Um, whereas, you know, Iyengar, uh, Patabi Joyce, Desikachar, very much made a distinction between uh, the Hindu aspects that had become attached to yoga and the yoga itself. And so the time frame we're talking about in the last 40 or so years, I would say you'd have to say that's when the householders kind of took over the narrative from the, from the swamis to some extent. Yes, and interestingly, people used to ask, you know, Patabi Joyce, um, you know, should we, should we, you know, take Ganesha? Should we take, you know, Krishna? And he'd be like, you have your own God. You keep your own yeah. God. Give us a mantra. Yeah. And he'd be like, you have your own prayer. You have your own God. You take this yeah. yoga practice every day, every day, every day for your, for mind control, for chitta, vritti, nirudaha. You take this yoga. Don't worry. Everything's going to work out. Um, so, Are we I, saying practice and all is coming anymore? Or has that become a verboten phrase? You know, he really, he, I don't know if I ever heard him actually say practice and all is coming. But he said, you take practice every day, every day. Don't worry. Yeah. All is coming. No, all the reason I ask that is because it's the title of Remsky's book, which is essentially right. a takedown of, of yes. Patavi Joyce, right? So. I don't know if we're going to get into that at all, but you know, it, it's these these are these are tricky times to talk mm -hmm. about revered teachers who have fallen. As has Swami Vishnu, by the way, the founder of Shivananda organization, who has recently been outed as being um, uh, a a sexual uh, predator in some people's eyes. So, yeah, I hadn't heard that till now. Oh um, uh, well, yeah, it's well, out there. Let's let's yes, that's all out there, and I think it's 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 all sobering for the yoga student and the yoga path, and it's about per, we have personal responsibility to ourselves not to uh, abandon our um, abandon ourselves to unknown agency. yes yes that we have agency in our life so. Um, what you were saying about the movement from the renunciants, uh, the monks leading mm. the 
intro of yoga, including say even Yogananda with self-realization and, um, mm -hmm. and the householders taking over from say this Krishnamacharya lineage is that the student and the teacher, the Western or the non-Indian students and teachers, they haven't quite caught up with that because the student, many students have it all blended in their mind that yoga should still be free, that they should live with less, that earning money is somehow bad or harmful. There's very strong themes of that. And I do find myself explaining to people what householders are, what the grahastaha are and what our responsibilities are. I think rather than the Vedanta, the yoga for the householder is more aligned with the purush artha, with these four aims of life, of mm. dharma, artha, kama, and veda. And in your wonderful um, interview with Deskachar, he talks about that, at, that his father said that comes at the end of life, that moksha, that liberation, mm. that's at the end of life. And so we're, here we are in the world, we're taking our, our yoga practice, they're benefiting our life day to day, I hope, because if they're not, mm. I'll go find the thing that is. And um, there is a time and a place for this moksha and to renounce. And that is at the end of the life. But mm. in the meantime, do your duty and uh, pay your con ed bill. And well, <laughs> uh, right. Well, I mean, to, to go back to some of the themes that he developed in that interview you referenced, number one, it's only towards the end of life you actually have something to renounce. You know, you can't skip steps. This has commonly been referred to recently as spiritual bypassing, you know, when you want to kind of skip over the, the acquisition of a self. You know, you can't surrender yourself unless you have a self. And a self is something, in my view, that's actually self-constructed. You know, we, we, we make our own souls quite literally out of the choices that we've made over the course of our lives in the face of the things we didn't choose. So that was an, definitely an underlying theme of that conversation. And the way he summed it up was with a brilliant and beautiful analogy. And, and he, he was, you know, trying to gently but firmly cure me of the vestiges of my sort of ashram training, which you know, was rejecting this idea that suffering or dukkha was at the sort of um, foundation of our motivation to study yoga. I thought, well, isn't our foundation ananda and bliss? And, you know, so I, I was in a bit of a conflict there. And, 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 he, and when I started to suggest that, he said, well, no, actually, if you tell somebody who's suffering that their true essence is bliss, you're going to make them suffer more. And the analogy he used was, you know, if you encounter somebody that's suffering because he, he can't find his house, you know, he knows he has a house, he knows he's lived in it at some point, but now he can't find it and he's suffering. The, the thing you don't say to him is, oh, yes, your house, there's a pot of gold buried under it. He will suffer more if that's how you approach that situation. And that just sort of stopped me in my tracks. And it really made me reassess a whole lot of uh, assumptions that I, that I was having about what our role was and what the role of suffering was in, in being motivated to, to study something like, like yoga, you know? And in a way he was divesting me of the sort of Swami influence, if you will, by being very this worldly, very practical 
and and you know so that's somewhat related to what we were saying about the the householders versus the swamis and how they would approach something like what's your motivation to to even study yoga in the first place so yeah that's the so out of gold story you were attracted to shivananda and you said did you say i'm going to go to grass valley and do a training or well it wasn't Grass Valley because uh, I was in New York. So I did my training in um, Valmoran, which is their main headquarters Canada. in the Laurentian Mountains, north of Montreal. Yeah. Um, it's the first time I ever left the country uh, was to go do my training in 19, summer of 1979. But I wouldn't, say, I wouldn't say that I was attracted to Shivananda. I was attracted to yoga. And the yoga was available through Shivananda, right? Um, it's not like I, you know did a Google search of all of the places that were offering teacher training or in-depth study because there, there, well, was, there was no Google. There was no you know. Google. And I remember opening the yellow pages, you would go sure. to the N and under Y, yeah. there was like two yoga schools. Yeah. Sure. Well, there, it was a, there was a time when I opened the New York yellow pages under yoga and I pretty much knew everybody that was listed there personally. Okay. That's, that's how old I am. Number one, that I was using the yellow pages. Yes. And number two, that everyone listed there was like, you know, we all knew each other. Um, so, yeah. So, you know, Shivananda was um, my access point to yoga. And as it turned out, I had some skills from my background in theater. Uh, I, I don't know if you know, I had a background in theater as well. Um, but, you know, just, just in terms of production, uh, they needed help because they were doing a big festival that summer of 79 and I stayed on to help build the stage and be the stage manager. And when you have skills that are valuable in an ashram, if you know how to get stuff done, you keep getting more and more responsibility. And that's just what happened to me up to the point where in 1981, I ended up in, in Kerala at the ashram there doing um, uh, the um, production and some of the teaching for a big teacher training program. There were like 140 people in that TTC in January of 81 in, uh, in Kerala. And you were 23 years old or something and you're in the- Yeah, I was young, you know. Yeah, you were young. Um, and I became a Swami on that trip to India. And, and what when, was that um, for you to take these vows and renounce <clears throat> the whole life that you had ahead of you? <laughs> Um, well, what did you? Well, because think? at the tender, at the tender age of twenty-two, I had had enough of myself, mm -hmm. pretty much. You know, um, I figured I had had plenty of sex by then. I, I you know, so um, renouncing that, no problem. Um, you know, uh, I didn't have much of my own financial wherewithal. You know, to renouncing wealth, like I didn't have any, so fine. And I was willing to take the, the third vow, which is obedience to the guru, because um, basically 